The scripture reading for this morning is from 1 Timothy 6, 13 through 16. Hear the word of our Lord. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Seated. To our, uh, to our lone clapper in the room this morning, I want you to know that you set an example for the rest of us. And uh, whoever that was, I don't want you to ever be ashamed to clap for the glory of the Lord. You know, when Christ returns, you know, you know who's going to be clapping? It says in the Psalms that the trees are going to be clapping as he returns to judge the world in righteousness. So when we clap, we're just anticipating that great day of his glory. And don't you worry about anyone else thinking that strange or odd or why would this person clap? Oh, why would they draw attention to themselves like that? Don't worry about all that nonsense. Just worship the Lord and clap your hands in freedom and know that you're doing it unto Christ. Would you pray with me as we get into our passage for today? Our Heavenly Father, we do come, uh, come before you with joy. And Father, we come before you waiting. Waiting for the day of glory waiting for the resurrection splendor, waiting for that day that you spoke of, Lord, when you will come again and restore all things. Father, we've truly, by your grace, by your spirit, we've tasted, we've had a foretaste of glory divine. We've, we've had a foretaste of what that day is going to be what that day is going to be like when we finally stand perfected in the presence of the Lamb, washed in His blood, clothed in His righteousness, standing holy in the sight of our God. Lord, we've tasted something of what that day is going to be like, and it, it not only has satisfied us, but it's left us longing for more. So God, we pray that this morning you would allow us to again have a richer foretaste of the glory and the powers of the age to come and the goodness of the word of God. Lord, I thank you for this, this day of 
rejoining this day when we, after a tumultuous year, are back together in one gathered space. Father, we see that is your will in the scriptures. And it is your will that we would not forsake the gathering of ourselves together. It's one of the primary means of grace that you've given us, Lord. And I thank you for this day when we can celebrate in your presence and even celebrate today at your table, gathering together as one people in one place with one hope, in one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Father, let us, may our hearts be knit together in love this day and that all of our differences on matters that are beyond tertiary, matters that are beyond the third tier of important issues, God, I pray that you would keep us from allowing any of those matters to come into that first tier issue space and become a point of contention or division or disunity. God, let us cast those things aside and return to what you've called us to be. Lord, knit our hearts together in love. And may we know your great love for us in Christ Jesus this morning in ways that we have not yet known as we wait and we work until his appearing. We ask this in Jesus' name, Father. Would you please hear our prayers and answer them for your glory? Amen. Well, this morning we're going to pick up right where we left off uh, last week. Just in summary, last week we were looking basically in 1 Timothy 6, 13. We got, I guess if you broke it down, we got about halfway through verse 13 last week. Not much of an accomplishment. But we saw last time that One of the most important things Timothy needed to remember as he sought to fulfill the ministerial responsibilities that were upon him as a minister and a laborer in the gospel, in order for him to fulfill his ministry well, he needed to remember that he himself was a man who was under orders. He was under divine commands, and he had no choice but to obey those commands. You see that in verse 13 where Paul says, I charge you, Timothy. Christ had charged Timothy to be a minister of the gospel, and he had placed him in a very hard and difficult situation in Ephesus. But the difficulty and the challenges did not change the fact that the Lord had called him to be a minister of the gospel and had placed him to be a minister of the gospel in that context. And therefore, whatever could have been an opportunity for doubt or discouragement in Timothy's heart, Timothy was to put all of it aside and simply press on in faith to fulfill the task that had been entrusted to him by God. 
For none of us, not even Timothy, are adequate in ourselves to do what the Lord's called us to do. Does anyone else know that? Feel your inadequacy? You feel your inadequacy when you go to pray. Feel your inadequacy when you read the scriptures, when you try to believe more. You just feel inadequate, much less whenever you're out on the street trying to witness to people, trying to witness to a coworker, or witness to your neighbor, or trying to serve one another in love in this place. We always feel inadequate because we always are inadequate in and of ourselves. But as we saw last week, what God commands us to do, God also strengthens us to do. He is the one who makes us adequate to do the work of the ministry that he's entrusted to us. And so Timothy, as one who was under divine orders, needed to remember that and rise up in faith and believe that God would be right there with him, strengthening him to do the work he had called him to do. Now, secondly, we noticed last week that then being under orders, Timothy needed to keep in mind that he or who ultimately would be holding him accountable for keeping those orders. And it wasn't the believers in Ephesus. It was not the believers in his hometown of Lystra. It wasn't even the Apostle Paul who ultimately would be keeping Timothy accountable to make sure that he fulfilled his orders. Rather, as Paul says in verse 13, it was God the Father who was going to hold him accountable, the giver of life to all things. And it was the Lord Jesus Christ who would hold him accountable. Now, in this, we see a vital truth that not only Timothy needed to hold on to, but we also must hold on to in our own hearts. And it's simply this, that the only opinion that really matters in this world is God's opinion. And if Timothy or you or I are to persevere in a faithful Christian life and fulfill the ministry that the Lord has entrusted to us, we must move beyond that common temptation to be concerned about what everyone else thinks about what we're doing. We cannot walk in the fear of man, and we cannot labor for man's approval and still be faithful to the Lord and what he's called us to do. We must walk in the fear of the Lord, and we must seek to live and minister in ways that are pleasing to him. And that must be our primary concern. And so that's basically what we looked at last week. Now, as Paul calls these witnesses in to Timothy to remind him of who would ultimately hold him accountable, he calls the Father... First of all, the one who gives life to all things, and that was to be an encouragement to Timothy. But then secondly, we see in verse 13 that Paul also calls in the Lord Jesus Christ to bear witness to Timothy's faithfulness in keeping this charge and fulfilling his duties. And there are basically two things about Jesus that Paul draws to our attention in verses 13 and 14. First of all, Paul directs Timothy's attention to Christ's confession to encourage him in ministry. So first of all, main point today, first main point, Christ's confession, for those of you who are taking notes. And then secondly, Paul directs Timothy's attention to Christ's coming. So Christ's confession, Christ's coming. One part is looking backwards to something that Christ has already accomplished, right? His confession. The other side is looking forward to something that is yet to be fulfilled, Christ's second coming. And both of them are set here for Timothy to be an encouragement to him in the present. So he is to keep, if you will, one eye in the past, and he is to keep one eye in the future and labor faithfully in the middle until the Lord brings that glorious future to pass. 
So that's where we're going today. May the Lord bless the rest of this message. So let's look first together at, uh, well, let's look at the first point together. Look with me at verse 13, where Paul draws our attention to Christ's confession. Verse 13, Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. There's Christ's confession. Now, obviously, in this part of the verse that we're looking at right now, Christ Jesus and his testimony before Pontius Pilate, there is a shift in focus from the person of the Father within the Godhead to the person of the Son. Now, to call upon both Father and Son to hold Timothy accountable is really significant. And we don't have time to dig into all the reasons why this is significant, but it's very important in relation to our understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. Jehovah's Witnesses and Oneness Pentecostals deny the doctrine of the Trinity, and they say that, well, the word Trinity does not appear in the Scriptures. Therefore, it's an idea that is imposed upon the Scriptures. It's not there. It's something that was added. Well, we might confess with them, yeah, the word may not be present, but that doesn't change the fact that the reality is everywhere present. What that word describes can be found all over the scriptures, and this verse is just one more illustration of that fact. To put Jesus Christ on equal footing with the Father in the act of judging Timothy's faithfulness in ministry is to bear witness to the deity of Jesus Christ. And practically, it means that Timothy and his service in ministry was to be consciously carrying out and fulfilling his ministry as an act of worship, not only to the Father, but as an act of worship to the Son. Right? It's just like what Jesus says in John 5, 23. It's the Father's will that everyone honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. Well, that's exactly what Paul's doing here when he's bringing in the Father and the Son to bear witness to Timothy's faithfulness. Timothy's here being called to... Honor the Father and honor, honor the Son in the way He carries out His labors in the ministry. Now, to get to Paul's point in verse 13, what he's bringing out here, he's calling upon Christ to bear witness to Timothy's faithfulness in his ministry as one who himself made the good confession in his testimony before Pontius Pilate. Now, the first few times I read this section, I was reading this book two years ago uh, in preparation for this series. The first couple times I read this book, when I got to this point, I always asked myself the same question. Why is this here? Why does Paul all of a sudden start talking about Jesus' confession before Pontius Pilate? I mean, be honest. How often do you think about Jesus' confession before Pontius Pilate? Did you wake up this morning thinking about how faithful Jesus was in his confession before Pontius Pilate? Have you ever done that? No. So when I read this, I, asked, I kept asking, Lord, why is this here? This is here for a reason. And I'm not getting it. I mean, it would make more sense to me if Paul's trying to encourage Timothy for ministry. It would make more sense to bring in Jesus Christ as the one who's going to judge the living and the dead. Right? Timothy, be faithful because Jesus is going to judge you 
based on how well you serve in your ministry. That would make sense to me. But to bring in his confession before Pontius Pilate as an encouragement for ministry, I really struggled to grasp that. Well, I think what we need to keep in mind, as I believe the Lord's given me some clarity on this, uh, hopefully, so I'm up here preaching and you guys are listening. Let's hope that it's right. Um, it is true that Christ Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead. And every single one of us are going to stand before his judgment seat. And we're going to have to give an account for every deed that we've done in the body, whether good or evil. Every single one of us, it's going to happen. It's especially true of ministers. Right? James 3, let not many of you become teachers, brethren, for we must undergo a stricter judgment. That is true. But I believe that if that is what Paul highlighted here to encourage Timothy to be faithful in ministry, that would miss out on what the Holy Spirit is moving Paul to emphasize. It wouldn't convey the same thing that the Spirit of the Lord is seeking to communicate to Timothy and by extension seeking to communicate to us. Yes, Christ will judge the world, and Christ would judge Timothy's ministry in his life, and he'll do that for each one of us, as I've already said. But this section is not serving to encourage Timothy towards faithfulness as a threat. You follow me? This section is not being given to Timothy as a threat to be faithful. It's designed to be an encouragement it's urging him forward to faithfulness, not by cracking the whip behind him and saying, Timothy, get moving. Rather, Paul is encouraging Timothy for ministry by holding up before his eyes the faithful example of the Lord Jesus Christ and using that example to woo Timothy forward to greater faithfulness himself. In other words, Timothy, be faithful in your ministry because you are serving in the presence of one who has been faithful before you. Now, isn't that how we are all encouraged to live the Christian life? Isn't that what motivates you to move forward in obedience to the Lord? Is it the fear of judgment and threatenings of hell that cause you to be faithful to the Lord? Or is it more often the sweet wooings and the drawings of the grace of the Lord? And the example of Christ, which one motivates you more? It's like what Hebrews 12, 2 and 3 point out to us. That in order to run the race set before us, we've got to fix our eyes on what? On Jesus. On Jesus as what? On Jesus as judge? On Jesus as condemner? On Jesus as the one who will deal out retribution one day? No, that's not what Hebrews says. Hebrews says you fix your eyes on Jesus as the author and the perfecter of your faith. The one who will not only begin the work of salvation in you, but the one who will complete it because he's already done everything necessary to do it. You fix your eyes on Jesus and you run the race knowing that he's already perfected your salvation for you. That's encouraging. That's strengthening, right? Look at verse 3. Hebrews 3, he calls us, consider him. Consider who? Consider Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. Consider him. 
Not as the one who will sit in righteousness and judge us according to the law of God, but as the one who endured such hostilities against himself from sinners. So that what? So that we may not lose heart and grow weary. See, that example of Christ as overcomer, as conqueror, as vindicator, as redeemer, as savior, as conqueror, that vision of Christ is what Hebrews 12 is setting before us and saying, listen, if you want to run the Christian life, if you want to to live the Christian life and run that Christian race, well, fix your eyes on this. Fix your eyes on Jesus and what he's done and then follow him. That's what Paul is doing here. He's drawing Timothy's eyes upward. Not to focus on Christ as the one who is seated on the throne of judgment, but to focus on Christ as the one who has already walked this path before him and who was faithful to the end. The one who can then help Timothy be faithful to the end. Now, in 1 Timothy 6, 13, Paul specifically refers, as I've been saying, to Jesus' testimony before Pontius Pilate. Now, the language in the Greek makes clear that this is talking about when Jesus was on trial before Pilate. The specific language is, talking, is really the language you would find in a courtroom when someone is giving a testimony to an authority about something that happened. And at that time, Paul points out that Jesus, when he was on trial before Pilate, did not shrink away from making the good confession. Love that. Jesus, Jesus was a true man. Jesus was bold. He was brave. He was courageous. His voice didn't quiver and his lips didn't tremble when he stood before the most powerful man in the lands of Judea. He made a good confession. Let's look at that. What is this confession that Paul is talking about? Well, in one sense, what Paul says here as the thing that Jesus did in the presence of Pilate, that could be said of Jesus' entire life. In his testimony, not just before Pilate, he made the good confession, but throughout his entire life, in his testimony, Jesus continued to make the good confession. It's like what Jesus said in John 18, 37, the reason that he had been born and the very reason for which he had come into the world was to testify to the truth. And that didn't start to happen when he was before Pilate. That began happening from the moment he had his first conscious thought as a man. He began testifying to the truth. Now that is simple. Jesus came, I love this verse, because it tells us the real purpose behind Jesus' coming. Jesus came in order to tell us about what's true. He came to tell us about what's true about God, and what's true about the world, and what's true about us. What's true about sin, and what's true about judgment, and what's true about heaven and hell. Yes, Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone else. Jesus came to tell us what is true about salvation and what must be done in order for salvation to be received. Jesus told us how he would accomplish redemption for his people and how his people would receive that blessing. 
And what's fascinating, it it does not matter where you turn in the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. It doesn't matter where he was. It doesn't matter who he was talking to or what he would suffer for doing so. Everywhere we look at Jesus in the accounts that are given to us, we find Jesus bearing witness to the truth faithfully unto the end. Whether he was speaking with his family members, some of us struggle with that, don't we? Whether he was talking with his neighbors, whether he was speaking with his kinsmen, the Jewish people, or whether he was speaking to the Gentiles, whether he was speaking to religious leaders who were with him or intrigued by him like Nicodemus, or whether he was speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were hostile to him. It didn't matter whether he was speaking to hostile crowds or indifferent crowds or deceived crowds or even if he was speaking to his apostles. It didn't matter whether he was at the beach or at the lake or in the boat or in the marketplace or on the hillside or in the synagogue or in the temple. Everywhere we find Jesus, we find him testifying to the truth. Jesus was the living embodiment of what Paul means when he charges Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 to be ready in season and out of season to preach the word. Don't you want to be like that? I want to be like that. I was so mournful. This is such a little side note. I was so mournful over the lost opportunities we had on our vacation because my mindset wasn't in the right place the whole time. Jesus was always ready. He was always ready to speak the truth. And he knew exactly how to speak the truth in every situation. Don't you want to be like that? How many times when you actually do open your mouth and you bear witness to the truth of Jesus Christ, you find yourself stumbling over your words and you're not exactly sure what to say or how to say it, but you say it anyway. And then you walk away feeling like, man, I just ruined that opportunity because I stumbled. And Jesus never, Jesus never experienced that. I want to be like that. Pray that he'll help me be like that. Uh, Anyway, Paul brings out this testimony of Jesus. Not, it's true, he bore witness and made the good confession throughout his entire life. But here in this verse, Paul zeroes in specifically on Christ's confession of the truth before Pilate. Now, just to remind everyone here who Pilate was, maybe you know, maybe you don't know. Pilate was the Roman governor that was appointed by the emperor Tiberius to steward Caesar's rule and reign in the lands of Judea. So Pilate, Pontius Pilate, was directly accountable to Caesar, directly answerable to Caesar, and he served as the emperor's personal representative. Now what Paul is pointing out here is really getting at the extent of Christ's faithfulness and bearing witness and making a good confession. Paul points out that even when Jesus was standing before the personal representative of the most powerful ruler in the world at that time, he still continued to make the good confession. 
And what was his testimony? What was the good confession Jesus made before Pilate? Well, if you read in the gospel accounts about Jesus' interactions before Pilate, it's very simple. Very simple. Three words. Jesus is king. That was his good confession. Every time you read of Jesus' interactions with Pilate in the Gospels, you find Jesus over and over again affirming the fact that he is God's chosen king. He's received a kingdom from heaven. And by extension, by implication, all the world owes their allegiance to him. Now, that sounds like, yeah, we know that, right? You've heard that before. You know Jesus testified to being king before Pilate. But I want you to think about what he was saying and to whom he was saying it. Jesus wasn't saying, I'm a king. Jesus was saying, I'm the king. He was making claims over the authorities, the, the civil authorities in his day that were not Israeli. Jesus is talking to Pilate, a Gentile ruler, ruling a government of the world, and he tells Pilate, I am the king. Didn't matter if Pilate believed him. It didn't matter if Pilate responded to that declaration. It didn't change the fact that Jesus is God's appointed king, set on Zion, God's holy hill. And Jesus is the one whom God the Father has commanded all rulers and all kings to bow and worship. Kiss the Son, God says to the kings. Kiss Him. Lest His wrath be kindled and you perish quickly. Now put yourself... In the shoes of Jesus. Who would you say is the most powerful ruler or king in the world right now? You don't have to answer that, but just in your mind. Who would you say? Imagine you're standing before his direct representative. The one who actually has jurisdictional authority over you, he claims. And you stand before Jesus, or you stand before, yeah, you know, we're all going to stand before Jesus, but you stand before this ruler, this representative, and you make this bold declaration to this ruler who has authority over you. You have no authority over me except that which was given you from heaven. Jesus is king, not you. Just as a side point, we're going to get to this next week. This is where the Protestant thought of uh, honoring God by resisting tyranny comes from. We'll look at that next week when we get to Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and I can't wait. But Jesus made this good confession before Pilate that he is the king, and therefore everyone owes their allegiance to him. Now I'm trying to get to the point that this was a bold move for Jesus. Just humanly speaking, imagine yourself in that situation. You're standing before, uh, let's just say, President Biden. Or, let's bring it down a level, let's, let's say you're standing before Governor Walls. And you stand before him and you make the good confession of faith, Jesus Christ is Lord over you. How would you handle that moment? I think the opportunity is coming for each one of us to be tested in that realm. We've already experienced some of it last year. 
Walls, you are not Lord over the church. Jesus is Lord. Get out. Right? Jesus was bold and he stood on principle and he claimed the truth fiercely. You see in Matthew 27, 11, just to justify some of what I'm saying, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus did not hesitate to affirm, it is as you say. John 18, 36, Jesus explained to Pilate, my kingdom is not a kingdom that is from this world. And Pilate said, so you are a king then. Jesus said in verse 37, you say correctly that I am a king. For this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world, so that I might testify of the truth. What's the truth he was testifying of? That he's king. And he reigns in a kingdom that is heavenly. Now what does that have to do with Timothy's ministry? How was that designed to encourage Timothy in his ministry in Ephesus? Well, I believe that the confession that Jesus is king is the essence of gospel ministry. It's the essence of the Christian life because no one can say that Jesus is what? Without the Spirit of God. No one can say that Jesus is Lord, King. No one can say Jesus is king without the Spirit of God. This is the essence of the Christian life. Therefore, this is the essence of gospel ministry. Jesus is king. And just as Christ was a witness and a faithful confessor of that truth, so Timothy must also be a faithful confessor of that truth if he would truly be Christ's minister. See, because as Christ was a faithful witness, he will judge Timothy's faithfulness as the one who was faithful. Does that make sense? A ministry that is faithful to Christ the King is simply a ministry that is devoted to upholding and declaring and spreading his kingly reign in this world through the preaching of the gospel. And you remember what we saw in 1 Timothy 6.12. Timothy had already made this good confession of Christ as king through baptism. Right? That's what baptism is. Baptism is a public declaration that Christ is Savior and that Christ is Lord. And it's also a public demonstration that the one being baptized is deciding to take his or her rightful place in submission to Jesus as king. When you're baptized, you are declaring to the world, I am taking my place in submission to King Jesus. Timothy had already declared the truth of Christ's kingship over his life through baptism. Now, as one who was called to minister in Christ's name, Timothy was being called to uphold that confession with his ministry. Christ had been faithful to do that very thing, and so Timothy must also be faithful. Now, this is the basic call in the ministry. To fulfill the ministry in such a way 
that we will not be ashamed of anything we've done when we stand before King Jesus himself. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent, Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Now that same principle applies to that principle was set down for Timothy. Timothy, labor in ministry so that when you stand before the one who was faithful before you, you have no reason to be ashamed in his presence. You labored faithfully. You labored with a clean conscience. You did what was right according to King Jesus. Minister that way, Timothy. That principle was set down for Timothy. That same principle applies to each one of us in this room who have confessed Jesus Christ to be Lord through the waters of baptism. You and I are called to walk by the same rule because we too will be held accountable to the same king. The same one who has walked this road before Timothy is the same one who's walked the road before us in utter faithfulness. He was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. We are to be striving to live our lives in such a way and fulfilling the ministry responsibilities that King Jesus has given to us in such a way that on the great day of his glory, when we stand before him, we will have no reason to be ashamed of how we've lived our lives. Now, that must be the rule by which we live. Let me ask you a question. If you compare your life to that standard, how are you doing? How are you doing? And I'm not talking about the things you did before you came to Christ. Of those things, Paul, Peter says in 1 Peter 4, of those things, we are all now ashamed. We are all ashamed of what we did prior to coming to Christ. How are you doing after coming to Christ? What are you ashamed of in your life now? What, what do you, let me put it this way. What do you allow yourself to do? And I'm not, I'm not bringing a hammer of judgment down on you guys, okay? As I tell many of you, I'm speaking, I'm preaching to me just as much as I'm preaching to you, okay? What kinds of things do you allow yourself to do in your life of which you would be utterly ashamed in the presence of Christ? What do you do right now that you would not be doing if Jesus were physically present with you? Of those things, I'm promising you, of those things, you will be ashamed when you stand in the presence of Christ. So cut them out now. Repent now. Don't refuse the goads that are prodding you. Move in the direction the Lord's calling you to move. Walk in repentance. Keep in step with the Spirit. Galatians 5 says, Devote yourself to living a life of which you will not be ashamed when you stand before Christ in his glory. Listen, sometimes I, I, I want to, we've been on this point for a long time, but just a little more. If you will, if you will allow me, if you will permit me some liberty here. 
Sometimes I talk very strongly about the severity of Judgment Day and how terrifying it's going to be. And the Scripture does that. I'm not out, out of line with the Scriptures. I'm, even Jesus did that. So I'm not, I'm not out of step with Jesus Christ. But I want you to hear this. And I want you to take it to heart. There will be nothing more cutting to you as a believer than what you will experience on the day you stand before Christ and see in Him not the eyes of anger, not the eyes of disappointment, but the eyes of absolute eternal love. When you stand before the Lord, you're not, as a believer, you are, the first thing you see in Christ is not going to be an angry look because you disappointed Him. Christ died to redeem you from that. When you stand before Christ, you're going to see eyes of piercing love. And they're going to cut you. When you look into the eyes of Jesus, there will be nothing, there will be nothing that will shatter your heart more than that. Because when you look into those eyes, and when you see the King of... When you see the King of glory standing in your presence, when you are ushered in, to His throne room by the Holy Spirit, and made by the Spirit to stand in His presence, just like the prophets. When you stand there and you are ushered in by the Spirit to take hold of His scepter, to grab onto His robes, to sit at His feet and to glory in His presence, when the Spirit of God brings you to that place, And you are robed in His righteousness. And you are made holy through His blood. Nothing is going to shatter your heart more than realizing in that moment how poorly you served Him with your life. How much time you wasted on yourself and not living for the King. Using your money, using your stuff for yourself, for your entertainment, for your enjoyment. And not using it for Jesus. You're going to be utterly ashamed of that when you look upon His glory. And I, when I wrote that, I thought, of, I thought of standing before Jesus, clothed in His righteousness, washed by His blood... And then not only being there and having the king seated in his glory and me even being allowed to be in his presence, but to then have Jesus Christ stand up in, in, in heaven in the presence of all the holy angels and declare, Seth, you are my son. I am not ashamed of you. What? I'm ashamed of me. You're not ashamed. Imagine Jesus, Teresa, I'm not ashamed of you. 
Jeff, I'm not ashamed of you. Lauren, I'm not ashamed of you. Mike, Jesus is not going to be ashamed to confess your name in glory. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Dear sweet Miss Helen, you're going to stand before him soon. And Jesus is not going to be ashamed to confess your name. What kind of love is that? And what kind of demands does that love make of us? It's not about law keeping. It's not about crossing your T's and dotting all the I's. The issue is, do you sense His love enough to devote yourself back to Him in love? Man, when you compare, when that takes place in your life, and you compare it to all the ways that you failed to live for Jesus with your life, and you feel that smack of embarrassment and that utter shame where you almost want to say, no, no, Lord, you can't say that. You can't say my name. You can't say my name and say you're not ashamed of me. I'm ashamed of me, Lord. And Jesus holds his arms out and he says, son, I'm no longer ashamed of you. I've done it all. I brought you here. You're holy and without blemish in my sight. Nothing's, nothing's going to make you feel more shameful over the way you lived your life on earth than that moment. That's what Paul is getting at here with Timothy. Jesus has already made the good confession and ran the race faithfully before you. He preached the gospel, Timothy, to us. He entrusted it to us. Look at his faithfulness and let that be your example and don't be afraid to follow in his steps. Conduct yourself in such a way that you will have no reason to be ashamed on the day that you stand before him. Well, let's stop there. We didn't actually get to the part of the sermon that was, for which it was titled, but we'll get to that. preacher I used to listen to a lot once said that as a preacher the worst thing is stepping down from the pulpit and knowing that you failed and man, that's so true Jesus is far more glorious and far more worthy of your praise and your lives than what I can communicate here and I pray that when you go home this afternoon, you won't be distracted by the less worthy things of the world. 
that you won't be distracted tomorrow morning by the shameful things of the world. I, I pray that you will go home and labor to know this Jesus more fully so that you can live more fully in a manner that's unshameful in his presence.